come to um, our reading for this evening. Yeah, it's a bit of an epic. Um, if you thought the reading last week was long, wait till you get this one. So we're looking at Judges 4 and Bits of 5. Um, and, uh, well, let's see how we go. After Ehud died, the Israelites once again did evil in the eyes of the Lord. So the Lord sold them into the hands of Jabin, a king of Canaan, who reigned in Hazor. The commander of his army was Sisera, who lived in Harasheth Hagayim, because he had 900 iron chariots and had cruelly oppressed the Israelites for 20 years. They cried out to the Lord for help. Deborah, a prophetess, the wife of Lapidoth, was leading Israel at the time. She held court under the palm of Deborah between Ramah and Bethel in the hill country of Ephraim. And the Israelites came to her to have their disputes decided. She sent for Barak, son of Abinoam from Kadesh in Naphtali, and said to him, The Lord, the God of Israel, commands you, Go take with you 10,000 men of Naphtali and Zebulun and lead the way to Mount Tabor. I will lure Sisera, the commander of Jabin's army, with his chariots and his troops to the Kishon River and give him into your hands. Barak said to her, If you go with me, I will go. But if you don't go with me, I won't go. Very well, Deborah said, I will go with you. But because of the way you are going about this, the honour will not be yours, for the Lord will hand Sisera over to a woman. So Deborah went with Barak to Kadesh, where he summoned Zebulun and Naphtali. Ten thousand men followed him, and Deborah also went with him. Now Heber the Kenite had left the other Kenites, the descendants of Hobab, Moses' brother-in-law, and pitched his tent by the great tree, great tree in Zanaim near Kadesh. When they told Sisera that Barak, someone of Abinoam, had gone up to Mount Tabor, Sisera gathered together his 900 iron chariots and all the men with him from Harasheth Hagayim to the Kishon River. Deborah said to Barak, Go, this is the day the Lord has given Sisera into your hands. Has not the Lord gone ahead of you? So Barak went down, to, went down Mount Tabor, followed by 10,000 men. At Barak's advance, the Lord routed Sisera and all his chariots and army by the sword, and Sisera abandoned his chariot and fled on foot. But Barak pursued the chariots and army as far as Harasheth Hagayim. All the troops of Sisera fell by the sword. Not a man was left. Sisera, however, fled on foot to the tent of Jael, the wife of Heber the Kenite, because there were friendly relations between Jabin, king of Hazor, and the clan of Heber the Kenite. Jael went out to meet Sisera and said to him, Come, my lord, come right in. Don't be afraid. So he entered her tent, and she put a covering over him. I'm thirsty, he said. Please give me some water. She opened a skin of milk, gave him a drink, and covered him up. Stand in the doorway of the tent, he told her. If someone comes by and asks you, is anyone here, say no. But Jael, Heber's wife, picked up a tent peg and a hammer and went quietly to him whilst he lay fast asleep, exhausted. She drove the peg through his temple into the ground, and he died. Barak came by in pursuit of Sisera, and Jael went out to meet him. Come, she said, 
I will show you the man you're looking for. So he went in with her, and there lay Sisera with the tent peg through his temple, dead. On that day, God subdued Jebin, the Canaanite king, before the Israelites, and the hand of the Israelites grew stronger and stronger against Jabin, the Canaanite king, until they destroyed him. On that day, Deborah and Barak, son of Abinoam, sang this song. When the princes in Israel take the lead, when the people willingly offer themselves, praise the Lord. Hear this, you kings. Listen, you rulers. I will sing to the Lord. I will sing. I will make music to the Lord, the God of Israel. O Lord, when you went out from Seir, when you marched from the land of Edom, the earth shook, the heavens poured, the clouds poured down water. The mountains quaked before the Lord, the one of Sinai, before the Lord, the God of Israel. In the days of Shamgar, son of Anath, in the days of Jael, the roads were abandoned. Travellers took to winding paths. Village life in Israel ceased ceased until I, Deborah, arose, a mother in Israel. When they chose new gods, war came to the city gates, and not a shield or spear was seen among 40,000 in Israel. My heart is with Israel's princes, with the willing volunteers among the people. Praise the Lord. Then the people went down to the city gates. Then Then the men who were left came down to the nobles, the people of the Lord came to me with the mighty. Most blessed of women be Jael, the wife of Heber the Kenite, most blessed of tent-dwelling women. He asked for water and she gave him milk. In a bowl fit for nobles, she brought him curdled milk. Her hand reached for the tent peg, her right hand for the workman's hammer. She struck Sisera, she crushed his head, she shattered and pierced his temple. At her feet he sank, he fell There he lay. At her feet he sank. He fell where he sank. There he fell, dead. So may all your enemies perish, O Lord. But may they who love you be like the sun when it rises in its strength. Then the land had peace for 40 years. Okay. So to Deborah. But before we launch into uh, that rather gory text, um, I want to uh, share with you one of my favourite cartoon strips. I don't actually, I say favourite as though I've got lots that I read and I don't. This is one that I use regularly with my um, A level students. Um, It's one created by Bill Waterson and uh, it's called Calvin and Hobbes. And uh, so named after, based very loosely um, on uh, John Calvin and uh, uh, Thomas Hobbes. Um, uh, One's a theologian and reformer, the other is a philosopher. Very loosely it's based on these two, because as you'll see from the uh, cartoon I'm about to show you, um, he projects these two characters as a little boy and his stuffed toy tiger. And uh, for those of you yet to discover them, uh, the little boy Calvin has a fantastic imagination um, because as far as he's concerned, when it's just him and Hobbes, Hobbes is a real tiger. And uh, as a result, they have wonderful adventures together 
and uh, have fantastic philosophical discussions as well. And uh, I want to show you this is uh, Calvin with one of his pet hates, which I sort of go along with, actually. I'm not a huge fan. Uh, and that's of uh, the telephone. Now, if you're not quite sure what it says, uh, the phone is ringing. Ring, 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 ring. Hello? We are unable to come to the phone right now, so please leave a message at the sound of the click. Click. And he puts the phone down. So whoever it was, no idea. That's quite typical of Calvin. He's quite a mischievous, naughty little boy. Calvin clearly hates having to answer the phone. He does all sorts of other things as well, but he hates taking messages. And sometimes, as clearly here, he will actively take measures to uh, avoid it altogether, not even engage with a person at the other end. What you might reasonably ask has that to do with Judges chapter 4 and 5. Well, if you wouldn't mind being a little patient, um, hopefully it shall make sense. So, we're looking at Deborah. And uh, if I'm honest, I'm just going to come back from that. If I'm honest, I knew more about Calvin and Hobbes uh, than I did about her before I started this. So it it has been a really rewarding experience delving into these two chapters. The only two, as far as I'm aware, that Deborah is actually mentioned in, in the whole Bible. And these two chapters raise for me a number of questions but I'll restrain myself to three. The first of which you've already uh, just seen there is quite simply who... Oh, I'm going the wrong way. Who was... I'm going there. Who was Deborah? We need to get the, uh, the basics right, don't we? Well, she was the recorded first... Fourth, I should say, fourth judge of Israel. And most obviously and notably a woman, the only woman to have been called as a judge during this time. And in terms of biographical detail, verses 4 and 5, you might want to have your uh, Bibles open at uh, the uh, chapters, at uh, Judges, chapters 4 and 5. In those uh, Judges chapter 4, verse 4 and 5, they simply say, now Deborah... A prophet, the wife of Labadoth, was leading Israel at that time. She held court under the palm of Deborah between Ramah and Bethel in the hill country of Ephraim, and the Israelites went up to her to have their disputes decided. Now, the Matthew Henry commentary says that it meant she was entirely devoted to the service of Israel. She judged Israel at the time that Jabin oppressed them, And perhaps, being a woman, she was the more easily permitted by the oppressor to do that. She sort of gets in under the radar, thinking it's a safe bet to allow this woman to have this position. Hmm, Rather ill-judged of Jarban, if that's the case. She judged, not as a princess, by a a civil authority, um, but as a prophetess and as God's mouthpiece to relate to the people of Israel, correcting abuses and redressing grievances, especially those 
which related to the worship of God. So not only was she a judge, but she was also a prophet. So not only was she devoted to Israel, she was intimately acquainted with God. It would seem at, uh, sorry, she was intimately acquainted with God. This resulted in her receiving divine instruction and knowledge by the immediate inspiration of the Spirit of God. It seems at first glance, and I could quite understand why anyone would go along with this, that she was married. But, just so that you're aware, some have argued, some scholars have argued, that she is not actually married at all. The uh, Hebrew expression wife of Labidoth could also be translated as woman of Labidoth. So, in fact, referring to where she comes from. Or the phrase could be a description of Deborah's character because the word Labadoth means torch or lightning. So Deborah could be a fiery woman. It could be more of a description of her character and her nature. Whatever her marital status, she was someone, and this is much more important, who knew God and served the people. And she was known for both those things. The people of Israel. Now there's an interesting bunch. We start chapter 4 with an all too familiar cyclical situation of apostasy, servitude and supplication. The Israelites were now settled in the land God had given them. No more wandering around. They didn't have Ehud the last judge telling them what to do and not to do in life and basically the people abandoned God's ways they departed from his laws and had willfully fallen away the writer Trapp writes the sedentary life is most subject to diseases standing waters soon putrefy it is hard and happy not to grow worse with liberty I found the first part of that really quite challenging. The sedentary life is most subject to diseases. Standing waters soon petrify. And that seems to have been the case with the people of Israel. They took what they knew of God and had abandoned it. And there's a direct consequence of this. We read in verse 1, again the Israelites did evil in the eyes of the Lord now that he was dead. So the Lord sold them into the hands of Jabin, king of Canaan. All those battles, so hard fought by their predecessors to establish themselves in the promised land, are now a faint memory, as they are subject to Jabin, a descendant of the Canaanites, who, when the people of Israel had worked with and followed God, had seen victory. This is the Canaanites' payback time. Not only are the people of Israel subject to Jabin, but they are oppressed by his commander, Sisera, with his advanced military technology of 900 chariots fitted with iron. It's a detail which doesn't seem to impress us very much, but it definitely would have impressed the Israelites at the time. It would have been very threatening. And this oppression had been going on for 20 years, which would have felt like a lifetime. 
And so the people cry out to God. Why? Because they loved him? Because they wanted to worship him? No, they wanted help. It had taken them 20 years before they reached out to God. Now, we know the ideal reason to commune with God is for worship, but sometimes we're just, and for all sorts of reasons, not in a place to feel able to do that. God feels distant, perhaps because we've willfully or passively wandered off. Can I strongly encourage you not to wait to reach out to him. If you need God, and and quite frankly, we all do, but if you know you really need God, you might not feel very loving towards him, but, but actually you might even feel pretty angry with him, but you know you need him. Don't be like the Israelites. Don't wait. Don't put it off. Reach out to him, and he will answer. So it was to this mess that Deborah enters stage left and in verse 6 she sends for Barak and lays out God's plan. The Lord, the God of Israel, commands you. Go take with you 10,000 men of Naphtali and Zebulun and lead them up to Mount Tabor. I will lead Sisera, the commander of Jabin's army, with his chariots and his troops to the Kishon River and give him into your hands. Barak is to wait in a position of military advantage high up on Mount Tabor and she will lead Sisera to the position of vulnerability down in the valley at River Kishon. Well, despite Deborah confirming this is God's plan, Barak is reluctant to go without her. Verse 8, Barak said to her, if you go with me, I I will go. But if you don't go with me, I won't go. Another writer, Mayer, writes that uh, Barak preferred the inspiration of Deborah's presence to the invisible but certain help of Almighty God. And all too easily, we can live our faith through someone else's. We can sometimes be guilty, I know I have been, of such hero worship that when called to do something we're reluctant at the putting it nicely and we feel inadequate for the task. Barak here reminds me of so many biblical characters. Moses, I'm not a great public speaker. Gideon, don't you want someone from a better family? Jeremiah, I'm not really the right age. They all gave excuses. None felt sufficiently able. Initially, they all thought about what they could do in their own strength and not in God's. And Barak does the same. And and little wonder, as he knows what he'll be going up against. It's formidable. He therefore wants the added confidence of Deborah being with him. And he won't do it without her. I think we can all identify with Barak We can all feel pretty insecure and inadequate, particularly when called to be out of our comfort zone, particularly when it's God doing the calling. We'll do what we can to avoid it altogether. We can, in fact, 
do a Calvin. We know that it may well be God that's calling us to do something. And rather than admit that, we try to disengage. We're not going to be there. But be encouraged. Barak, this I'll go if you go guy, is actually one of those, and this is a bit of a surprise, one of those listed in the heroes of the faith in Hebrews 11. So this is a guy who, I'm only going to do it if you go excuses kind of a bloke, was one of the guys who made it into the heroes of the faith in Hebrews 11. So be encouraged. Notably, though, and I do find this rather irksome, Deborah is not listed. I think that perhaps is more about Paul, but uh, that's for another um, sermon. Interestingly, though, Deborah doesn't have a dispute with Barak about his reluctance to go it alone, but instead says in verse 9, certainly I will go with you, says Deborah, but because of the course you are taking, the honour will not be yours, for the Lord will deliver Sisera into the hands of a woman. So Deborah went with Barak to Kedesh, and there Barak summoned Zebulun and Naphtali, and 10,000 men went up under his command. Deborah also went up with him. So the commander of the enemy, Sisera, will be ultimately vanquished at the hand of a woman. Which I don't know about you, when I first read this, I rather presumed would be Deborah. not to be the case. By not responding to God's call, Barak, and relying on God, like Calvin, Barak was going to miss out. If we don't actually pick up the phone and speak to the person at the other end, we'll still remain in the dark as to what it is or who it was or what wonderful thing we're being called to. And Barak kind of missed something there. In verse 11, we have a bit of a swerve of the story. I remember when I was writing my notes, I put the person's name down and had lots of question marks, like, what is, why, what, hang on, where are we going with this? Why are we suddenly talking about this? Okay. What has anything, what has this got anything to do with it? It says, now Heber, the Canite, had left the other Kenites, the descendants of Hobab, Moses' brother-in-law, and pitched his tent by the great tree in Zanmin, near Kedesh. So we're having this swerve of a story of a family pitching a tent somewhere. Who's Heber, and why should I care about where he puts his tent? Well, this is like one of the, the scenes in a film that at the time of first viewing, you think you don't really notice you don't think much of it. It's only later that you realise how crucial that scene was in the film for the later plot twist. This descendant of Jethro, Moses' father-in-law, and at this point an ally with the oppressive king Jarban, makes this decision to pitch the family tents just at that spot, at just that time, and it has huge ramifications something which at the time might have not felt terribly important, but it certainly had unforeseen consequences. And so 
the story moves on apace. The armies take their positions. Barak, with Deborah, has the military position of advantage up on Mount Tabor, and Sisera has the military technological advantage with his 900 chariots fitted with iron. It is at this point we have our second question. Go. Has not the Lord gone ahead of you? Well, it's a command and a question, isn't it? Deborah is being um, an encouragement when she says these words. She's being an encouragement to Barak with not only her presence, but her words. (coughs) Excuse me. It's a rally to come on. Let's go. Let's do this. No more delays. Why? Because God has already gone ahead of you. It's a case of go. You can do this. Because you're not on your own. You're not on your own. God, almighty God, is with you. And uh, with these words, Deborah is also putting life into perspective. Barak hears Deborah's rallying cry and leaves his position of advantage, which seems madness, and goes down into the valley. The one military advantage he has, he's just let it go. Why? Because God has gone before him. We worry about all sorts of things. We hold on to things that make us feel safer or more secure. But Deborah says, go. Has, the Lord not, has not the Lord gone ahead of you? So I encourage you. If God is calling you to do something for him, whether it's for the big summer, and we have fantastic opportunities there, committing to something, either within Brighton Road or without, an activity or group, to go to a particular place or speak to that person. Do it. Don't pretend you're not there. Don't pretend you haven't heard. Go. Has the Lord not gone ahead of you? Barak does, and God indeed has gone before him. The Lord routed Sisera and all his chariots. We know from Judges 5, verses 4 and 5, and five, chapter 5, verse 21, that God helped Israel to victory by bringing, and it's rather topical at the moment, by bringing a flash flood. The muddy conditions made the chariots of iron an absolute hindrance. So that military technology was rendered pretty useless. The odds were really stacked against Israel originally, and it makes God's victory all the greater. Sisera, however, escapes on foot. He slips through Barak's fingers and manages to find sanctuary in the home of an ally close by. Verse 17. Sisera, meanwhile, fled on foot to the tent of Jael, the wife of Heber the Kenite, because there was an alliance between Jarban, king of Hatsor, and the family of Heber the Kenite. Jael, wife of Heber, invites him in to hide in her tent. Now, now this seems like a cunning plan, as people would not expect a man to be in there 
as, quite frankly, it was a breach of etiquette. Men would, unless it was the husband, should not be in the women's tent. She is the great hostess. She provides warmth. She, she goes out of her way not just to give water, but milk to quench his thirst. And Sisera also asks her to be the lookout and lie for him. Sisera completely underestimates her. Apparently, the, uh, the everyday skill of putting up tents lay with the women. And they would have therefore been really effective at doing that, as it uh, was something they would have to do as each time they moved, put the tent back up. So, Jael would, as you have pointed out, be pretty good with a hammer and a tent peg, that which was near to her and that laid to hand, what was available to her. Now, what she does is quite simply she murders him as he sleeps. And it is described in a pretty graphic way. Her actions are debatable. (laughs) On the one hand, Cicero knows the custom of never going into a woman's tent without her husband being there, and anyone who does can be killed. On the other hand, Jael's actions of inviting him to come in without fear covers her intention. She doesn't hesitate to commit cold-blooded murder after having offered hospitality, which always included protection. Either way, Jael is heralded by Deborah in chapter 5 in her song. Verse 24 we read, she is a most blessed of women. She had brought to an end, with a tent peg and hammer, the oppressor of Israel. Sisera had been defeated by Barak, but he'd remained alive until that tent situation. He may have gone on had it not been for Jael's actions. He may have gone on to continue to oppress and to put down the people of Israel and and Without Jael's actions, that would have been the case. Now, I understand that Charles Spurgeon preached a sermon on this passage. It was entitled Sin Slain, apparently. And in it, he suggests we can take Sisera as a type of sin and his master, Jarbin the king, as an image of Satan. He insisted that we should not be content to to merely defeat sin as Barak defeated Sisera in battle, we should not rest until sin is dead. And just as Jael um, asked Barak to look at the dead body of Sisera, Spurgeon said we should look at sins slain by the work of Jesus, knowing he has already won the battle. He says, if you are content merely to conquer your sins and not to kill them, you may depend upon it It is the mere work of morality, a surface work, and not the work of the Holy Spirit. In other words, if we try to merely defeat sin in our own strength, then we may have some victory, but the sin can still live in our lives. It is only through Christ giving his life on the cross for us that sin is truly vanquished 
and we can be set free from the oppression that sin brings. That's why sharing communion together, as we have, is so important. It marks that moment when just as Sisera's death marked the end of Canaanite oppression and 40 years of peace, Christ dealt so gruesomely but so completely with our sin, heralding the establishment of an eternal kingdom. Can I add, but it's still important to note, Sisera has been delivered into the hands of a woman, just as Deborah said. It's not the woman I expected, but then why should it be? Deborah was God's mouthpiece, and he has done as he said. If God says, so shall it be. Promises will be kept. It might not be in the way you expect, but then why should it be? I'd like to turn briefly, and you'll no doubt be glad to know, to, uh, to Deborah's song in chapter 5. And it's here we find our third and final question. It's in verse 16, and it may seem at first rather an odd question to focus on. Why did you stay among the sheep pens to hear the whistling of the flocks? And verse 17, why did you linger by the ships? In her song, Deborah has basically divided Israel into two. Those tribes who were willing to step out in faith and those that were not. Those that were willing to respond to God's call and those that were not. Benjamin and Issachar join, as do Naphtali and Zebulun, risking their very lives. In 15, verse 18, Deborah names and shames those that did not join them. We read that the tribe of Reuben doesn't come out well, nor Gilead, Dan, and Asher. With them, there was much searching of hearts. But ultimately, they chose to remain and not respond to God's call through Deborah. It was safer. It was the more logical thing to do. Have you seen those chariots? We don't stand a chance against them. They thought about it. But thinking about it isn't actually doing it. It strikes such a sad tone, don't you think? Contrast that with when people willingly offer themselves, says verse 2, praise the Lord. God is praised when we respond to his call. We do not respond because we think I can do it, because I have the ability, the skills, because I can see how this amazing plan is all going to work out. No, we respond because God calls us. We might not have all the answers. We might not have all the skills. We're unlikely to know how the plan is going to work out. But remember, go, has not the Lord gone ahead of you? Christ has gone before you. By his grace, you are saved. It is he that will equip you. He that will enable you. And he that knows the plan. 
For as Paul wrote to the Romans in chapter 3, for all have sinned and fall short of the glory of God and all are justified freely by his grace through the redemption that came by Christ Jesus. God presented Christ as a sacrifice of atonement through the shedding of his blood to be received by faith. He did this to demonstrate his righteousness because in his forbearance, he had left the sins committed beforehand unpunished. He did it to demonstrate his righteousness at the present time so as to be just and the one who justifies those who have faith in Jesus. God has given the people of Israel time to reach out to him. It took them 20 years before they did. He called them to task that from a human perspective, something that seemed beyond them, but God was faithful to his promise. Don't leave it too long to reach out to God. Answer God's call. Don't simply search your heart. Rather than stay, step out in faith. 